Thank you all for showing up on this very wet and rainy Saturday um, afternoon. Um, let me give you a bit of background about myself, um, the program that I co-founded, and the book we've written, and um, what I've learned over the last few years working with probably close to 25,000 teenagers all over the UK. Um, so my name is Dina Puccio, and I am a former senior assistant district attorney um, from the Sex Crime Special Victims Unit of the District Attorney's Office in New York City, um, Brooklyn, actually, where I was born and brought up. Um, but I'm also a mom, and I'm a mother of three teenage daughters that are, have been brought up here in the UK. So I've got a daughter who's 19, I've got a daughter who's 16, and a daughter who is 13. Um, the RAP project, the Raising Awareness and Prevention project, started because of something that sort of happened with social media. Um, my now 19, almost 20-year-old daughter and I were driving on a Saturday morning. Um, I was dropping off a drama school, and she was at a single-sex girls' school, and her two BFFs were in the back seat and laughing about the fact that my daughter was going to meet up with some guy. So I'm like, wait a second, excuse me? So I try to be the cool mom, capital radio on in the background, and I ask the question, I'm like, so Emily, you're meeting up with some guy? And I get the, ah, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, what's this guy's name? Oh, John. All right, you know anything else about John? You know where John goes to school? Do you know what his address, where he lives, his age? Can you give me something here? More eye-rolling. She told me I've embarrassed her for the rest of her life, wasn't going to speak to me, and she gets out of the car. There's some women here laughing. You, these conversations might find, sound familiar to some of you. Now, at that moment, I thought, well, you know, I, don't, I never heard Emily talk about guys. I mean, she said all-girls school. I'm a pretty hands-on, nosy mother. Um, how did I not know that my daughter was meeting up with some guy, right? And I thought when I was growing up, way back in the dark ages, there was one landline in the house, right? Your parents always knew who were calling. They were always waiting for a call, by the way. But they knew the, our community, because our community was localized. We went to school with people. We, we lived on the same street, lived in the same neighborhood. But because of social media, I was out of the loop. I didn't understand or know who my daughter was friending. I didn't know if she understood who she was friending. And at that moment, quite frankly, all the cases I prosecuted back in Brooklyn came flooding back to me. And I realized not only, oh, my God, I have a teenage daughter, but I have a teenage daughter growing up in a very different time. And I wasn't sure how to navigate this. My parents could navigate me because our, our lives weren't that different based on I didn't understand Snapchat, Instagram, WhatsApp, Facebook. I didn't understand if my daughter understood the information she was putting out there about herself, um, how she was creating a digital profile, if she knew the implications of that. The fact that you know, when you send something out there, you cannot take it back. Um, and that's when... I had the idea of coming up with a program to help teenagers navigate this world. So we are now in over 125 schools in the UK, and we work with about 25,000 teenagers. The literary part of, of why I'm here is um, we ended up writing a book, because there's two of us that do this. We run, all, we run around all over the place um, talking about sexual safety and social media and its influence on teenagers. And we couldn't keep doing it. So we were approached by an, actually an agent to write a book about this, and that is Sex, Likes, and Social Media, Talking to Our Teens in the Digital Age. And it's about talking to young people who are, their, their prism of life is very different than generations before them. 
And not only do teenagers have all the social pressures and, and real pressures we had growing up, you know, getting good grades and, um, you know, trying to be a decent person, what they wanted to do when they got older, but now the constant pressure to be available 24-7, that if you do not answer that text or that post, the anxiety. In fact, UCLA just did a, a study, and it measured teenagers' brains. They did MRI scans, their reaction to likes on Facebook. And the same chemicals in the brain get released. This, it's a, and I'm not a, a not doctor, I'm not pretending to be, but the same chemicals are getting get released if someone is gambling or eating chocolate or drinking caffeine. They get a high, the adrenaline goes. So they get kind of addicted to this rush of needing always to be online. They don't practice discretion because they have to post their perfect lives, their perfect latte, their, their, their perfect evening out. They don't realize that the people seeing it who are not invited and not feeling they're so perfect, how it affects them. Um, there's sexualization earlier because our young people are exposed to a lot of hardcore pornography. It's on their phones. So the average age of a young person watching pornography, according to Ofcom, and I'm not being approved, but it's 10, 11 years old, and this isn't loving relationships. This is pretty hardcore stuff. Again, how's that affecting them? Um, it's leading to, from what psychologists are saying, and most days heightened uh, young people with eating disorders and self-harming and suicide rates, attempted suicide rates going up. And my feeling is our, these kids are no less stronger than I was, but they're dealing with so much more. And I'll, I'll close on this thing. If you think about if you are at your house, okay, and you leave every electrical socket on going on all the time, the lights, the TVs, the phones, everything plugged in and going 24-7. I always ask the kids this, what's going to happen? And the answers I get, well, it's going to blow a fuse or it's going to set the house on fire and there's going to be a blackout. I think those are our teenage brains when it comes to social media. They're 24-7 on and at some point something's going to blow and that's what really worries me. So... I will now. All right. Turn provocative ending. Thank you. Yeah. Emma, go ahead. While Emma is walking up to the stage, I just want to note that after the uh, panel, there will be the possibility to uh, buy uh, the books that the Dina and uh, Emma have written and to get it signed, I believe, as well. So, yeah, please great. do. Um, hi, everyone. Thanks again for coming out on a Saturday and hearing us speak. Um, so this topic is really, really close to my heart. Everything that I've done in my career leading up to now has always been around social media. I was that kid who was an early adopter, shall we say, to coding and MySpace and blogging and everything like that. So um, my career background started off, I actually worked in the social and digital marketing team for Dove. Um, we were the first team that started a Facebook page for Dove. I worked really closely with Unilever, got to work with them in-house on their strategies, and I actually came up with the kind of tone of voice that Dove would have online and talk to kind of 12 million women, which was amazing, but also really scary, talking to like 50 different countries about social media. So I've started off in this industry. I'm still in it. I feel like it's constantly changing. Um, and then I went into journalism. I realized marketing wasn't necessarily for me, and um, I wanted to take all of my passion that I had talking to women in this space. So I actually started working at The Debrief, which is part of Bauer Media, which do Grazia and other magazines. And then up until last year, I was working at Glamour as a social media editor and working across a lot of different magazines at Condé Nast. 
So now I'm here, I've written a book, I basically tweeted a joke that I wanted to write a memoir about millennials and growing up on the internet and that kind of murky decade between sort of like 2000 to 2010 about all the stuff we got up to before Facebook, before Twitter. And um, I basically kind of, <laughs> the, a literary agent saw my tweet and was like, oh, I'd, I'd publish that. Um, and that's how it all happened, literally one tweet by accident. And... Um, a lot, I guess one of my fears is sort of people saying, why, why have you written a memoir? You're 27. Actually, I was 25 when I wrote it. And they were like, you can't do that. That's really weird. Um, so I think the point is, is that I wanted to talk about this stuff because I felt like growing up, I didn't have a book telling me kind of how people make mistakes online, how they learn from them, how they rectify things, how they might have got bullied and dealt with it, how they might have been sex-shamed online how things can be taken out of your own hands, and also how friendships and relationships and everything <coughs> changes. It can be good and it can be bad online, but I just wanted to write down all of my own anecdotes. It's funny and it's sad, but I just wanted to write that down. And I feel like in internet years, it's been like 300 years. Like the, the <laughs> internet has moved so quickly that actually when my niece, who is now five, when she reads my book, and she's not allowed to read it until she's 15 apparently, it's rude, um, so when she reads it, she will literally be like, oh my God, I can't believe you did that, and I can't believe you used that, and oh, that sounds like something that should be in a museum. So I feel like I've documented this time in history, but also it's not about me, and writing a book that's all about you is very self-indulgent. So what I've done is I've launched a podcast that is a spring, an offspring of the book. It's called The Same Name. And I've interviewed um, people from age 14 to age 60 and above about their relationships with the internet. I've interviewed people like Cindy Gallup, Zoella, uh, Elizabeth Gilbert, um, Rowan Blanchard, lots and lots of different amazing people. And it's just hit half a million Listeners, which is incredible. So I feel like this conversation is something that needs to be had from lots of different perspectives, not just mine. Um, and I think everyone's voices, it's very exciting to hear them on this topic. So that's a bit about me. I don't know how long I've been yeah. prepared on the thing. I've just rambled. Do um, you want to say something about yes. the book? What is the take-home thing? And the book, yeah, so the book is basically that, that decade that I was talking about. It talks about Photoshopping, when I used to Photoshop myself online before Instagram um, it talks about how we deal with death now online and how we actually mourn people in a digital way um, it talks about cyberbullying and it talks about catfishing it talks about friendship um, but it's very easy I think to draw parallels so when you read it I'm sure when you kind of see my anecdotes it's quite relatable to all ages and I don't think it's anything new I think these themes are very universal which I'm sure we'll discuss but um, it's easy to parallel it now to the teenagers nowadays and how it's probably worse because I had the internet connect I had an internet connection for like 30 minutes a day and then if I was being bullied I could leave the computer in the family computer room and live my life whereas you know younger people now have a phone constantly vibrating in their pocket and I think That must be really, really difficult. So I've had parents email me saying they've read my book and they find it very enlightening and they're also terrified, but thank you for sharing because I feel like now I know more. But I've also had you really young girls saying thank you for being honest. So, yeah. Great. Thank it. you. Thank you, Emma. We have slides. Hello. Right. 
So um, I have a, a something slightly different to the talk about. So um, there are two bits. There's the, uh, the story of how I grew up on, on the line, which is slightly different because I'm quite a lot older than Emma. <laughs> and then some thinking about the things I'd be um, worrying about if I weren't a teenager now. Uh, and I've been making things on the internet since 1996 uh, and in the last year have started my first um, policy job and I, I run Dot Everyone with um, a think tank um, trying to understand a little bit about how uh, we can cope with now. Uh, both from a legal and, and government perspective, but in terms of how we're better off being educated, the, the skills that everybody needs to, un- to understand things. And our aim is making the internet work before everyone, um, which is actually quite hard um, because everyone is different. And in terms of the the um, journey I've had online, it is kind of different. This is me in 1976, which is like pretty pre-internet. Um, I was born at about the, the time the first Unix mail server was built, um, but you know that didn't actually turn into... Con- consumer internet for a long time uh, and you know I obviously had a childhood that was uh, that didn't have the smartphones or the Facebook um, but later on uh, in about 1992 I had my, my first email address <laughs> and I didn't really understand it it was like the letters <laughs> and numbers and uh, I could only use it in the com- com- computer the room to email other people in in um, in um, that room because that was the only internet um, so it, it, it was like this is here but I, you know it's the thing and then who here knows what this is oh, this is a test nobody wants to admit it about the third year it's a a CD-ROM and um, I, I kind of accidentally uh, en- ended up as an editor on this, and it, it kind of took me into working online. And I, I spent a little bit of time earlier today um, looking in the Internet Archive at the things i had done previously. And I spent about five years as teens editor at the BBC. <coughs> and for anyone who came on onto the internet in the last like, 10 years this is really bad so just hang on so not all the images are here obviously uh, and there is a ticker at the top, I mean this is really regret but this is I think this is late um, 1999 we improved a little bit uh, <laughs> by two, <laughs> but the thing that was really interesting here, we had about half a million teens visiting every week, 
and a community of 800,000. So we did lots of quite early work around safety, around um, enabling online communication. We got a front page of the Daily Mail in, I think, 2002 for teaching teens how to have sex on the internet, which wasn't entirely true. Um, (laughs) But in terms of the context here, if you look um, just there, there's a a, a blur for the phone, right? And this is the, the phone <laughs> that was being reviewed. It's a, a WAP enabled Siemens. Um, so, you know, it was pretty different. And then after that, um, in about 2006, I worked on, on Big Brother. Um, and that was quite interesting in in another way, because I think 2006, the Facebook had just crossed over here, but was still quite academic, I think. Twitter had launched, but no one was really using it. And it was my, my first opportunity to make the things on, on the internet that kind of everyone saw. So I was the uh, interactive editor for the three the seasons of, of this. And you make a, a, a video in the morning, and by the afternoon it would have had the 30 million views. Um, and that was partly because it was all quite a, a different pre-Facebook book. Um, it, was, it was easier to get um, volume um, then. But it was quite kind of strange because we were recording people... It, um, in the diary room, people who were 18, 19, 20, who were quite vulnerable, and turning the, the stories into entertainment. So that was interesting. And then, uh, now, I'm the mum. And my the son, who is the four, um, these are his, his frequently used emoji. Um, and, and I'm thinking, but I don't know, the thing that is happening is maybe the father, the Christmas, and an astronaut have done a jewellery heist, maybe, and a escaping <laughs> on a cable car. Who knows? But, I mean, he's, he's vividly telling us, us stories in another language. Um, and he has an, un, an, un, an understanding of, of that I don't have. Um, and so it kind of, like, um, thinking about all the things that have changed in those 20 years, um, we're actually now in a totally different place again. And that I was thinking, kind of, if I was 17 now, the things I'd be the worrying about would be really different. But so the, 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 the first is like how to understand the world. Um, and, you know, we're in a world where too long didn't read is a thing, yeah? Where it's, it's okay to say, I, I haven't read it because it's too long. Um, <laughs> 
And like, even more weirdly, it's a, a lot easier to have an ambient connection to um, loads of knowledge in a fast way, but um, not really have a lot of depth. I'm always really interested in the Google boxes that sort of tell you everything that you need to know to look vaguely credible-ish um, without actually really looking into it. And that actually, I think this is one of the most um, troubling and odd things of our, our the time, that these guys here are the people who write the, the, the Facebook uh, the Facebook uh, um, algorithm for the timeline. And there are eight of them. And they have worked out the underlying logic that distributes information to over a billion people. And that how do you understand the world now if you're growing up here and this is all normal? And the other area that I was thinking about is work. Because I don't really know. If I think about how things have changed over the last 20 years, like um, definitely um, when I was working on a charter, I probably wouldn't have guessed that there are people who make the living making gifts now. Like, that's new. Um, but that actually there's, there's other changes that are about to happen that are a lot deeper. So um, I think it's really hard to know. Like, if you were choosing um, A-levels now, it would be really hard to know the things to choose. Because on the, the one hand, there's a narrative that everyone ought to learn how to, uh, how to code. Um, and actually, probably, I, I think currently... 8% of the world coders work in, 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 in uh, Silicon Valley. Um, uh, and they're the, the, the premium um, level. And everyone else, it's kind of a little bit like maybe you're working in the mine, right? And if it isn't now, over the next 10 years, as, as a number of things are, aut- are automated out, that will become more and more and more and more the case that actually it's hard to know. Is it, like, it's, it's probably now better to have computational understanding than it is um, learning a, a coding language. But the other is, there's this kind of weirdly interesting thing that is happening um, where the, the things that are the least able to be automated are the least technical. So in a world where we're working out how the economy of the, the, the future works out, if I were 17 now and I wanted to be confident that my uh, life work um, wasn't going to be taken over by the robot, I'd be thinking about my creativity, my, un- my understanding of of others, my motor skills. And like really interestingly, according uh, to this survey, um, I think um, being a a choreographer 
is the 12th least likely job to be automated. So <laughs> that's uh, probably not expected. However, being a lawyer, being a, an accountant, uh, is, is, hi- is highly likely. And that actually changes loads of norms. And so, you know, the, the thing I, I'm, I'm interested in and here to think about as, as, as we think about how kids are, are growing up on, online is, is this, really. Thank you. Thank you so much uh, for kicking this off. Uh, you've given us all kind of ideas and things to think about. Um, you've, you've touched on some of this already in what you were saying, but um, if you would have to say something in terms of what is really new, what is really something that we haven't seen before, you talked about work, um, is this a very different revolution from the industrial revolution um, who is likely to really have to catch up and you hinted at that a little bit Um, Emma you said a little well it's not that these things haven't happened before but maybe the context is different in your book actually um, Dina you and your co-author a lot of the book is actually not about technology which is interesting Um, so I'd like you to maybe all three of you, to give a little bit of that reflection. How much is really new and how much is this building and how can we use the knowledge that we already have to to understand this, perhaps, world? did you want to start, Rachel? Or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, can, I mean, I th- to me, probably the difference is it's faster um, and that I know certainly in technology, people spend a lot of time um, looking ahead and generally there's not a lot of people who try to understand now or the uh, things that have just happened. Mm-hmm. And I think there's... It's more that, uh, particularly, I think, in in the last year, the a thing that has changed is that if, if we'd have been here a year ago, would anyone have anticipated Brexit and the crazy campaigning that sped up around that and how that turned into, into, into the Trump. And I think that there's kind of a speed and a lack of um, deep understanding right now. And do you think that's a problem, that people are not taking the time to understand what's going on right now yeah. to be able to yeah because it, because it's it feels like probably most of the people who are are running the brand accounts on on the facebook book okay. you know it's 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 yeah. not evenly distributed okay right. Emma, do you want to the thing for me is is like how our ability to be addicted is is stronger and and that's not just kids that's like my you know my parents who never really understood what I was doing on my computer uh they don't look up from their iPads much either and I think it's the fact that as humans we adapt very quickly we adapt so quickly to technology the fact that you can see like two-year-olds just like swiping at things just being like why is it not opening (laughs) because they're so used to their phones or whatever but so I think for me it's just and what you were saying about the dopamine rush and the kind of the loop of it feels good, it feels good. And I think it, it's going to impact a lot. That's going to impact the ability for us not to look up and see the world is actually very scary. And although social media has helped me in many ways um, 
cut corners in my career and and you know connect with amazing people and campaign more than I ever would before I think the fact that we are getting increasingly addicted can be bad and it could be really bad for creativity as well mm. okay um it's interesting I, like, I don't think social media is all horrible or the internet's all horrible I mean I, I don't know how I got through law school and university without google and a computer and I don't you know and my children, my kids were able to communicate with people all over the world and it could promote social change and it, it, there's great things about it. What worries, the, the biggest change I see is that the social behaviors that are exhibited amongst teens, bullying and, and certain things, years ago it was more containable. So if there was a situation in the schoolyard that broke out between two young people, it probably got resolved or those both people can go home and you locked your door and you had a safe place, right? The bully wasn't going to come knock on your door and continue to bully you. But now because of social media, things go viral. So I've had teachers say to me, that they'll say, say, say to young women, because young women are twice as likely to like, bully digitally than, than young men. There'll be a fight at school, an argument, and by the end of the day, the teachers, the head teacher, could, could solve it. The problem could be dealt with. She says, by the time I get back to my office, it has been Facebooked, it has been tweeted, it has been Instagram, it's all, and now it's out of control. And what could have stayed between one or two, you know, two or three people, there's 50 to 100 people involved. So it, everything gets exacerbated. Was there always pornography? Of course there was always pornography. Playboy used to come to my door from, wrapped in a brown wrapper. But the images that young people at such an early age are seeing, which tend to be misogynistic and violent and young people are being exposed as a 10, 11 years old. How was that affecting them psychologically? So yes, porn existed. Cyber, you know, bullying existed. Um, sharing naked photos. I mean, teenagers would take naked photos. But here's the thing. When I was growing up, it was called a Polaroid. <laughs> and you could go, shh, shh, bye-bye. You broke up with the person. You're never to be seen again. Now, it's gone and made the school scene. Or it's gone to, you know, hundreds of people. And how do you get that back? So did all of these social behaviors exist 20, 30, 40, 100 years ago? Yes. But it's just, it's, it's sort of on steroids now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's a tough thing for young people to deal with. Okay, so let's talk a little bit then about this dealing with it, you know, because I think in all of your presentations you've emphasized, and you just did as well, uh, Dina, that we are on these technologies, right? And we do take advantage of them. There's opportunities as well as risks, maybe. So how could we, what do you think the most important thing is that we could now do to make sure that we can take up those opportunities but maybe avoid, maybe if not avoiding the risks, but at least some of the more uh, harmful things that come from taking some of those risks? What are the important things that we could be doing, either in the world of work or in school or in our personal lives? What is... And who should be doing it, maybe? I, I, I just Because I work with, with teenagers from the 12 to 18, 19 years old, and I think we need to talk about it. Part of the reason we call the rap project is rap communication. I always tell the kids, I'm not going to come here and rap. Do not worry. Jay-Z can keep his job. Um, but that's, it's promoting dialogue. Setting parental controls doesn't work. Setting privacy settings, as much as you think you're going to protect... A young person, they will, they're smarter than us when it comes to this world. And they will, I've asked kids all the time, I'm like, once we figure out how to do it, you've gone on to something else. Absolutely. So it's about talking about this. Talking to young people about having to feel pressure to be perfect all the time and post that perfection. Not only what it does to them, their self-esteem, but everyone else that's looking at it. 
So it's all about having to talk to your kids about pornography. It's not real. It's fake. We don't look like that, and we don't want to look like that. Um, I think it's all about if we can't pretend that Pandora's box isn't open. So to me, it's, it's, it's all about dialogue and communication as early as possible with young people about these issues. Yeah. Yeah. Did you, yeah. No, I totally agree. I think it's not, it's not necessarily... You can't solve other people's problems in, in a click, click of a finger. It's kind of... I always say it's giving tools to people in order to deal with it. So, and that's going to take time, obviously. But like you say, communication and talking about it and making it something that isn't everyday communication. It's not just something that exists in like really niche areas of the internet or in life. But one thing that's quite interesting to me is this kind of generational divide and kind of bridging that gap because people always say this about millennials in the workplace, about how they do certain things and they are addicted to their phones and they're really lazy and they don't work very hard and they're really entitled and all the rest of it. And it's very easy to make assumptions about another generation and it would be very easy for you know that it to be to get quite mean and i could make gen, um, generalizations about the the generation bef- um before me is it, is it generation z i don't know don't, don't ask uh, they like centennials <laughs> or something but and so i think this communication between the generations is very very important because um i think it's by 2020 like 80 percent of the whole global workforce is going to be millennials and so therefore it, we need to talk to each other because this generation coming up are going to be taking over the workforce after that. So it's, it's, the behaviour is important and we shouldn't just knock it. So who, who is the... Like, who should be talking to her? You talk to teachers, you talk to parents... And teenagers. And teenagers, teenagers, mostly teenagers amongst themselves. Yeah. Who do you think... Um, like, who do you think should not keep quiet? <laughs> uh, I, I, I don't know. I think everyone. I think, yeah. if you've, I think everyone's got a voice online and it's, you know, it's, it's a responsibility now to use it. And you see lots of people with big platforms, whether it's YouTubers or whether it's celebrities or whether it's politicians but um, this stuff I think is so crucial that you can't really not talk about it but for me on a personal level it's it's younger women who need advice I you know you can always give your own personal experiences and how you dealt with it and in a professional capacity um, I do I do a lot of teaching as well so mm-hmm. just making it normal kind of language yeah. not Probably shying away from it yeah so, Rachel, you talked about quite a different area, which yeah. is like, what is it? Are there solutions, or who should be getting involved in this sphere of? Uh... Well, it's, I, I, I don't think I really, I don't think I'm by fear as yeah. much. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm probably more of an optimist. Um, <laughs> but I would say it's always really easy to think that things are other people's problems, um, and that maybe. To your point, that your parents aren't really looking up from their own parents. You know, it's it's more that it's a world that everybody is living in, and there are other things to do as well. So, I guess the most important person in the lives of children who are growing up online is is parents, and that actually there's a maybe a different kind of parenting is, is needed. You know, I, I quite often think about how, um, back to that picture of, of me as the kid, um, uh, there was the, uh, the, the Tufty Club, which uh, the films that were on after Bankpuss in the, in the 70s that taught, that, taught, that taught you how to cross the road. Uh, 
and they were always the same, very formulaic, that actually, um, if you don't give something the name and you don't um, describe it and you don't understand it, it's easy not to change it. But actually, if you say, hey, look, it's the internet, it's your phone, it, it works like this, um, then actually you're giving people extra power, and that's good, I think. And I would say, um, I slightly disagree about teenagers, because like teenagers have been creeping out of bedroom windows like all of time. <laughs> and, and that... It's more, I think there's more of an opportunity for, as a parent to know now. It's more that you're... I think previously there was a lot that you wouldn't um, know as a parent that would just be out of your realm of information. But now I think things are turning into bits of media that get uh, distributed and bullying become tangible. It's more that I think there's almost a, a good thing in that lots of the parts of the teenage life that were probably hidden have come out more. I must say, though, I was very good at deleting conversations right. from, like, the recycle bin. You know, I, yeah, I, yeah. Yeah, I was really, really good at hiding it. And, and most, most parents, because we, we work with a lot of parents groups, we do cor- corporate talks as well to, to adults who have got ch- young people in their lives. And most parents, quite frankly, not most, it's horrible, so... A lot of parents we talk to are clueless. Mm-hmm. And all of them say, my kid doesn't watch porn. My kid is never sent to sex. My kid would never do something. They would never bully anyone online. And you're like, my really? my friends were saying, they read my book and they were like, my daughter never did that. Really? <laughs> and so, but somebody's doing it because we've got a problem. And, and yeah. all this, the studies and the statistics show someone's kid is doing it, but not their kid. Yeah. But to, to, to Rachel's point, though, now maybe there's also the pressure because we can know, right? We as a parent now have the opportunity to constantly surveil and monitor uh, because it, not that we can, but we, there is a certain obligation also to know what's going on every minute of the day. And I remember when I was young, I would say, oh, I'm still staying with this friend tonight. I wasn't staying with my friend. I was going to go, you know, with the boyfriend that my parents didn't know about and I was out until late at night, you know? So as long as they don't Snapchat it, we still don't know. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're cagey. <laughs> if they lied to you, they're not going to be Snapchatting their 2 o'clock in the morning binge fest because they know you're going to watch it. And then, and then, as, then, then you've got the issue of you've got give, you to give young people freedom, right? Mm. If you're constantly monitoring their accounts, number one, they're going to find something, another way to communicate. But number two, you're gonna, you've got to give them trust. So, you know... They're not get all their passwords. They're going to shut down on you, and they're going to find another way to hide everything they're doing. So part of it is like Emma was saying earlier. It's about they need to come to the conclusions on their own, and we need to help them get there. And also, I think it is it is really interesting watching like my kind of nieces and nephews and their friends and that sort of um, the really younger kind of generation at the moment. That some of them aren't that bothered. I feel like it's the older you get that you don't have it. You're, like, binging on it. Like, oh, my God, like, all these games. Like, my mum's like, Candy Crush, wow. And I feel like, because she, she hasn't had it all her life, she's like, oh, my God, this is, like, a, ma- a magic land of stuff. But, I, but, but then if you, if you are born holding an iPhone, like they all are, I, I, do, I think they are, I think they're cooler than us. Like, I just think they're a bit like, yeah, Instagram, great, I'll go on it in a bit. And I don't know if they're as addicted 
from what I'm seeing. So I don't know whether we're going backwards slightly. We've kind of got to this like peak of, I need a digital detox, help. Mm. And it's, it's like going back on itself and they might be less So is that a obsessed. form of literacy as well, that yeah. as you get more used to it, we get less... I hope so. I hope so. Because I'm in the middle of it with yeah. teenage girls and I'm just like, oh my goodness, you know, <laughs> my daughter will be at the, di- the table with her friends having dinner yeah. or out somewhere and they're Snapchatting across the table from each other. But they're sitting across the table and they're not talking. They're actually on their phones with each other. I'm like, ladies, talk to each other. But they're actually across the... Yeah. That just is strange to me. Yeah. Yeah. You know, look in each other's eyes and have the conversation. Don't take a picture of what you're eating that your friend can see. And, and, and filter it and filter yourself eating it and share it across the table. It just So I'm hoping it changes. Because yeah. right now they're still doing it all the time. And all the... Yeah. I mean, what is up with that, ladies? Seriously. You know what I mean. All the young women, you're all laughing. That's what they're doing. So, you know. I wonder how our parents looked at us and the yeah. things, too, if they would know the stuff we yeah. were getting I into. I did all of that, but like you say, it's, it's, it was on like Bebo or something. It's gone now. It's fine. I'm worried that <laughs> but, yeah. it might stay around longer yeah. for them now, yeah. but mm-hmm. they can delete it. Um, Rachel, uh, the, the kind of... Um, motto or whatever you want to call it the, the, the uh, what dot everyone stands for it's for making it yeah. good for everyone so I'd like you to uh, talk a little bit more about that aspect of it are there people for whom this is a better world the digital one than for others and, and what is it that um, kind of why does dot yeah, everyone sure. think that this is a thing that we should be thinking about so I, I, th- I think um, the uh, the thing that has uh, uh, m- um, um, made us um, want to do this is that we're only 20 years into the internet and yet the things that are happening is that we can see lots of the divisions of everyday life have been coded into, into the internet too. You know, the internet began as a kind of quite uh, egalitarian dream and has quite quickly become quite stratified. There's, you know, a massive difference between... We've just done lots of um, work with people who who have really poor health outcomes. And very often people who have poor health outcomes are excluded in other ways. And so, say... um, We've just done lots of work with older people who are at the end of of life who actually, if you're 92 sitting in a care home, it would be amazing to Amazon Prime with some um, ice cream um, and to be... A Skyping with a person who's down the hall, but 80% of the care homes don't have internet. So it's that actually it feels as if there's a uh, egalitarian, shareable every day, but mostly the people who have those things have the phones and bank accounts and data packages. And that isn't available to everyone. And I think the other thing that we see is there's a really tiny number of people who are now making the choices for 
um, certainly um, lo- um, lots of us in the West. And so um, if you go and talk to Google and Apple and Facebook, they will tell you that they are uh, bringing the values of American democracy to the world, which um, is not the, 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 the things that I've voted for here. I haven't voted for uh, the Facebook uh, um, AI that will work out who's a terrorist or not. Um, I don't know or understand the the provenance of that, and that actually we're like in a a kind of oddly um, post-regulated world. And so. I think to us the things that are really important is that all of us can understand more about those issues and that the tiny number of people who are making decisions that affect everyone have to be more accountable to. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, like uh, as you might know, I've worked with Don everyone. So, yeah. um, and we just finished a project with uh, young people in non-education and blood training and we see a lot of these same issues, not just access to technology, but also... So once they're online, they don't feel like they're represented, their voices are heard, mm-hmm. they often feel excluded, especially in social environments where a lot of people are, uh, are out there who are not really like them. So I think that's an important thing um, to think about. And um, I, I'm just going to ask you something, Emma, about something that you wrote in your book, I think also because you are a blogger, right? And there's now vlogging and uh, kind of the, the audiovisual world in that sense has um, taken this up too. You, you write something about how it might be much more difficult now mm-hmm. than for when you started. So what, what is that? What has that change been? Like, is it easier to become a public figure? Are the pressures bigger right now um, on how to do it? What is it that you think is going on? Yeah, because I actually um, interviewed Zoella for my podcast about, about that thing as well, because obviously she's um, got 11 million subscribers on YouTube, which is incredible. It's, like, it's kind of bigger <laughs> than the readership of Vogue or whatever. And um, yeah, she's a big voice to a lot of young girls. So, and she doesn't really do podcasts. She doesn't do interviews. Like, why would she need to? She's got 11 million people that she can talk to directly. So it was a really interesting interview. Went around to her house, had a really kind of honest chat. And that's why I love about podcasting, is it's so intimate. And we spoke about that. We said, you know, what did we get lucky in this? 2008-9 maybe earlier kind of environment where there were a few blogs some were popping up there were like 10 you'd google like 10 top UK bloggers and like everyone would have just named the, the top 10 now everyone has a blog like if you have a blog you're not unique it's it's like breathing it's just blogging is is kind of yeah not very innovative at all so that's fine but what that means is growing up now and wanting to kind of have a media career it's not just like oh I'll get a blog and I'll get noticed because you don't really stand out that way so what it means is you have to have something to say more than ever before the world does not need another beauty blog and the world does not need another podcast um talking about you know anything just rambling you know we don't need this sort of fluff anymore whereas before it was like oh cool a blog it's so new so um 
It is possible, of course, of course it is possible. There, there's been blogs in the last year that have just taken off and one of them um, is called Mother Pucker. It's a, it's a parenting blog, but it's like a parenting blog I've never seen before. It's, it's the real behind-the-scenes stuff of being a parent. It's the stuff that I want to know about. I don't want to know about your perfect life with your amazing three children. Sorry, I want to know, what is it like? What do you mess up? Um, when do you get really upset? Like, or when do you get really happy? I, I want to see the whole 360 spectrum of your life, and that's what she offers. And she really does, she is very honest about things when they go wrong. Um, so she's living it alongside everyone else. And yeah, she's, she's now an ambassador for lots of brands, like, like amazing brands like L'Oreal and whatever. And yeah, her Instagram has grown sort of to like 50,000 in less than a year. So she, she is an example of a course. Of course it can happen, but only if you're different. So you have to become in a way more strategic about knowing and what is the niche, almost like a professional in the way that media... Yeah, and if that, I mean, I interviewed someone the other day called Grace Victory. She's the first woman of colour YouTuber with a book deal. Um, and she talks a lot about body image as well. Mm. And she, she grew up thinking, there's no one like me on YouTube. Mm. And when you see a gap like that, that is desperate, and there are so many gaps that we need covering. I mean, it's, it's like we need to fill these spaces. Um, we need role models of, of, across the spectrum. So if you see a gap... Go for it, and you must must launch something yourself because we don't have enough yet. Yeah. Okay. Even though there's so much, and we overload, yeah. right? As you were talking about. Um, so, Dina, what do you think is the most surprising thing when you, in this uh, in your work in the rap project and the things that you've done that you've come across? What was the thing that you never imagined encountering or finding out when you did that? Well, that's a good question. Um, I think how vulnerable our teenagers are right now in the environment they're growing up in. Um, I, I mean, I remember pressures when I was young, but I didn't. I wasn't. I wasn't trying to be perfect. I wasn't trying to look perfect. I wasn't trying to be the most popular person. I, you know, I didn't need to get all A stars and a thigh gap and a. <laughs> you know, and I, I didn't feel the need to do that. I did my best, and you know, and I wasn't a, you know, loopy la la kid. I, I was a normal kid. And when you talk to young people, I mean, I, you know, the early sexualization. You know, I got a I got a call from a, a head teacher at a school. I was driving my car to another school, and I almost crashed my car, saying that there were a, a group of parents called up. There was a group of thirteen-year-old girls who were being coerced into anal sex and threesomes. And how do we handle this? And it was because the boys were watching so much pornography and they were seeing this and they were expecting it from the young women. I never thought that would be a funny. I put rapists away in Brooklyn, for goodness sakes, for a decade, and I, I'm still overwhelmed by how much younger yeah. our, our teenagers are dealing with things. Um, there was a thing, Ofcom just came out with their latest report, and... Something like 63% of six-year-olds can stream on YouTube or can stream videos and six-year-olds. So to me, it's how much younger um, they're being exposed to things, but be it sexual, be it you know, um, online. I, I, that, I think, has been shocking to me. And as I'm growing and getting older, the age gets younger of what, I'm, of what these kids are dealing with. Okay. And that, that's been the bigger shock, yeah. bigger shock for me. The surprise shock. Yeah, uh, yeah, not, not, a, good, not a good shock. Okay. And, and they're vulnerable and scared. Okay. 
Right, on that um, happy note. Happy note. <laughs> now, um, I think I'll open it up to the floor uh, from some questions. If you can raise your hand, um, maybe say something about yourself before um, uh, asking the question as much as you want to share with us. Um, yes, uh, over there and then over here. Well, I will take two questions and then in a half, see if we can combine them to answer. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, well, thank you for the talk first. It was very good. Um, I work in the media industry, um, and it's essentially my job to try and get as many people to engage with content online. Um, and I was wondering whether you felt that the media industry had a duty of care um, in some cases to um, the youth of today growing up. So, for example, um, you know, we'll analyse posts to see which will engage the most, tug on people's heartstrings. You know, we. Um, do social listening to see what people are talking about um, to be able to target content better and all this kind of thing and I was just wondering yeah what you guys kind of felt about the media and well how complicit we are in some of these problems potentially I'll take a second question. Similar question, um, but I produce digital content for children in an art gallery, um, and I'm just thinking about um, the importance of policy and procedure versus education of parents. We have, like, COPPER in the States, the UN um, Digital Human Rights, um, but what about Europe, England? Should we have regulation and policy interested, or education? Okay, thank you. Um, any, anybody want to... Well, I was on the I don't know if this answers your question but I'm going to go for it with the education policy kind of uh, route is um, something that really shocked me recently with, with talking to Laura Bates of Everyday Sexism Project she says that her book is actually banned in some schools because it just has a little illustration of a vagina in it but she talks about how the sex education um, uh, system is actually dated back to 2000 which doesn't even talk about the internet in sex education it's like that old prehistoric um so i feel like that that is really that really shocks me and i feel like that needs to change and be regulated updated obviously but also something that is taken way more seriously um but yeah that's that's on that i just want to say that okay yeah like the duty of care thing i find really interesting because it's it's being an, an american the whole first amendment and the, which not donald trump believes in that but as an american i do believe that and being a lawyer um, you know, how much do we censor? How much do we hold back? Because then who's going to monitor that and then who becomes the moral compass to what we allow people to see? And that concerns me um, as a lawyer. Um, I believe very much in, in free speech and, and free market, and I think that if, if you start saying, well, someone can't say X, then... I think I'm answering the question, because I think we all struggle with these issues. What do I not let out there, and is it going to incite riots? Is it going to incite more you know, self-harm or whatever, versus allowing people to choose for themselves? And because then what one person might find offensive, some person finds is perfectly okay and acceptable, then who's going to set that moral framework up? And I don't really want anyone to do that moral framework, because then it's a very subjective test. It's, it's difficult. I think it's something that we all struggle with. Personally... The reason why we talk about education and talking about this is I want young people to come to the conclusions about what's right and wrong on their own. Give them the critical skills to make them analyze whether this is something they want to partake in, whether they want to view, whether they want to participate in. 
and that's the only way. Stopping them from seeing it or talking about it or censoring it, I don't think that's that's realistic anymore. That's a great question, by the way, because I think it's yeah, a, it's a really struggle. good question. I feel like from someone who did work in like kind of glossy magazines and then and then kind of from there realised that actually it for me it's too contained. I don't want to talk about stuff that they want to talk about necessarily. Like I don't want to do who wore it best to the Oscars. I just I can't be doing with that personally, but. Um, I think it's it's up to you, but also like whatever you feel fits with your own morals. If you don't want to read something, if you don't want something to carry on, don't click on it because, like you say, if the Daily Mail is getting engagement off the chain, it's going to keep being a thing. And so, for me personally, I it's, I just try not to click on things that I don't agree with. I have been, I've been watching like the Simon Schuster Milo thing and oh, the fact that they've now pulled it. I think there are hard lines with what we should not put out there, obviously. But also I think um, it starts from kind of the, the bottom up. So in all media organisations, advertising, publishing, you need people, diverse people, making the rules at the very beginning and commissioning out. It's not just, oh, we want someone to talk about the Beyonce album. Let's commission this writer to talk about that. It's more, no, have on your staff a whole range of people and then you can all decide together what you want to talk about. It's my personal belief. Um- Picking up there, there's a there's a real tendency in the internet to disregard all the rules that were there before. So it's like um, like how back to the the kind of weird thing about the Facebook's approach to working out what is appropriate or not. There there are loads of uh, moral code, content codes. There's ways of 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 the classifying films there's like ways of understanding that and we don't have to do it all again every time and and I would say one of the real problems of uh, kind of ad driven content is that the the, the value is the view um, which creates lots of really broken behaviour and I really hope I mean I'm really hope that we're coming to the end of, of that, that the last the 12 months are kind of proving that all that's really happening is money is moving around and everyone is is stupider now. Like, like it, it just hasn't worked. And so, um, you know, it, it... And it kind of joins up, I think, to the other point, in that actually, in a, pub, like in a public space... Um, we've just done work around um, libraries and looking at the kinds of th- things that people do there. And again, there's a really interesting thing where lots of local uh, um, local uh, um, authority blacklist things on their network. And so if you're turning up to have a, a safe space to look up a... Uh, Problem that you're not able to look at at home or to understand. Like, if you're going to the library to look up uh, an eating disorder, and that's the blacklisted, but that is the only place you're able to do it, then that creates some kind of interesting the challenges. And and I think that we're starting to think that coming at these things from a place of the safeguarding is 
um, better than the censoring. You know, and so if you come from a place of how to uh, look after everyone, um, then your policies will be more um, logical as opposed to things that say it, it has a picture of um, a vagina in it. It's dirty, mm. you know. And so there's and it and I, so I suppose I'm I'm slightly saying two totally different things. Like on the one hand, we don't have to make it all up again, but on the other hand, we don't have to apply things in a the black and the white way every time. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. The questions. Okay. Um, I'll give. Um, where is the other mic? Um, and so yeah, um, you're Hi. standing right next to the person <laughs> to get the mic, and here one downstairs, and if the other people could put their hands up so that I keep track of. One, two, three. Okay, yeah. Hello, thanks very much for a really interesting discussion. Um, I'm a psychotherapist and also a student counsellor. There's just really a couple of things, reflections. One was that. Um, in a way, I sense that we're all kind of addicted at the moment to technology, but that shouldn't stop us from questioning and being open. Um, I, feel, I feel people kind of shut down a bit because they privately think, well, I'm a bit addicted as well, so I can't really comment on these things or brush it away. That, that was one reflection. And the, the other one was that because there seems so much sort of business with the omnipresence of technology, I thought, this is a very therapy phrase, so forgive me, but it's kind of like there's a bit of a current attack on thinking, finding the space to just reflect and ruminate. Mm-hmm. Um, there were just two observations, really. I think thinking is so important to give ourselves time to think about these things, mm-hmm. rather than always censoring or something like that, or saying it's good or bad, just giving ourselves time to think, just a couple of reflections. Yeah. Okay. Um, I manage a volunteer programme for young people um, and over the past couple of years I've done hundreds of interviews meeting hundreds of young people coming to volunteer on my programme um, and one of the questions we ask are, um, is what are your hobbies and interests and for the first time a few months ago a 16 year old girl um, told me in response going on my phone and I was really taken aback I I was also taken aback by my own reaction, which was to judge her. Um, And I've been thinking about that response ever since. And I think my question is more of a dilemma. Um, And I'm just kind of quite keen to hear of your own reaction to that. And are we in a position to judge? Should we turn and accept that and encourage it? Um, I was quite upset that she didn't have anything else to say, but should I have been? Oh, no, I would have the same reaction to that. But, I, but then I think I also can't judge her either, so it's, it's one of those ones. But I, I'm really kind of... My thing is, like, how, how can we encourage young people to be really, really, truly creative and to think? I guess those kind of merge together in that way. Of How can we get kids to be, like, slightly bored so that they can go and do something really amazing? Like, when you watch yeah. YouTube clips of Steven Spielberg being like, I literally have nothing to do, so I just got a random old camera and went and shot a film. It's like, oh, right, OK, now you're amazing. Um, so I, that scares me, that, that, that the hobby is just scrolling. Scrolling is the death of everything. I always think at the moment, do you know what? If you want to write a book or you want to do something or you, you want to get out there and make something incredible, go and do it because everyone is scrolling. 
no one is doing it. So go and do, go and live your dream tomorrow. Seriously, no one's looking up. So I think when you think back to like other decades, hundreds of years ago, everyone was writing amazing books and scripts. I really worry at the moment that no one's doing that. Um, so yeah, I don't know if that answers the question, but I feel like we need a little bit more boredom in a way. Um, Eric Sigmund, the other psychologist who also talks at schools, uh, I was reading this quote today but, um, before I came, and he said. Um, a phone should be a tool, not a way of life. And that sort of goes to what you're saying, that this has become a way of life for this young person. So, so we got to get people early and start early. And I'm not a perfect parent. My God, I struggle with this all the time with my daughters every day. Um, but stupid things like if we go out to dinner or at the dinner table, we'll take out a deck of cards. I, I like buying board games at Christmas time. And we sort of shut off during periods of time and we'll just sit home you know, whether for a few hours and play games or, you know, one school does no phone Fridays. Just little things like that to give them a bit of a, a digital detox. And I hate that word. It's a big buzzwords. But I think to try to give them something that we used to do when we were growing up, um, when we didn't have all this technology. But I understand, yeah, of course your reaction is going to be, that's what your hobby is. You know, what about writing or what about reading or something? But unfortunately, that's the way their lives are right now. So, yep. so I just want to encourage different things. The other thing I want to say on the thinking thing is, is one thing that worries me at the moment is that people, young people especially, need to feel like they need to contain their identity. So if they post it, that's them. And, oh, I've posted something and someone disagrees. Oh, God, I'm an awful person. But actually, like that Malcolm Gladwell quote, which is like, if you're not changing your mind, you're not thinking. Or if you're not contradicting yourself, you're not thinking. And I think we need to be more... We need to be happier with changing our minds. Like, I was quoted in a book last year saying something. I totally disagree with it now. <laughs> I literally... It's just being sold and printed. People are tweeting me, like, I can't believe you think this. I'm like, well, I did, but I don't now. And so I think it's okay to change your mind. It's all right to grow. And actually, your online identity isn't actually always who you are all the time. Um, it's just throwaway, and you can change. Yeah. So I get a little bit to the right to be forgotten, but the right to make mistakes and yeah. Yeah, <laughs> change yeah. your mind, right? Um, you work with a little bit more broader group of people yeah, and yeah. there was the question are, are we really in a position to judge are we you know are we can, can we uh, are we ashamed to say something maybe because we recognize a lot of ourselves how did you see is this a generation thing really or as we were saying before you know actually probably a lot of us look at our phones instead Too of much. Uh, yeah. but I mean what do you I mean if you were being charitable uh, she could have been doing anything you know, you could be reading, writing, editing an image. So it's kind of, actually, maybe the question there is not putting the blame on her. It's like, has anybody, like, if if the only tools that you think there are are the Snapchat and Instagram and the Facebook, then actually, um, like, uh, the the best ways of making people interested in other things and broadening their perspectives are to give them a thing they're interested in as opposed to saying have a day of putting the phone away it could begin do a different thing read a a book on your phone you know and so I suppose it's not that like being on your phone is actually being on like a tiny power before computer you could be making anything and that there's 
potentially a fault of the education system there, I'd say. Yeah, and we talk about that in our, our work here at yeah. the LSE. It's about what we do with the technology rather than the technology itself, right? It's the outcomes that yeah, we yeah. get from it. You know, she could indeed be creating all kinds of fantastic videos on her phone and sharing it with the world. Maybe not, but, you know, that's <laughs> probably the, that's that's the, that's the conversation you might have after that. Okay, let's go to... Um, um, I'll take a, in the back and in the front. Oh, I'm sorry if you have to walk down a lot with the mic, but... Here in the front and all the way in the back. Uh, Nico McDonald, I studied law here and worked in digital media for 20 years and have two kids who are under 15. Um, I thought uh, Rachel's comments about how we think about work and our kids was interesting and related to a discussion that took place here in January, not in the Literary Festival, obviously, uh, on digital work. And uh, I think that would be interesting to discuss more. But I had a particular question which related to something Emma said about the way that adults are a role model in a way for kids and that you know, we have the same characteristics that we see in them of being obsessed with digital technologies and so on. And I think the role of parents and kind of social parenting is quite important. I don't think we've really touched on it mm-hmm. in that I think kids to an extent have adopted digital technologies as their public space because we've crowded them out of real public space through either anxiety about them, the kind of cotton wool kids... You know, we don't want our kids going more than, you know, 200 metres from our houses and so on. And to an extent, fear of kids in public space. And there's something in between that about fear of adults, you know, um, relating badly to kids in public space, which is anything from, you know, abuse to, you know, kidnapping and so on. And these fears are you know, not real, but they have effectively forced kids out of public space so they don't play unaccompanied, they don't wander around <coughs> on their own and so on. And it seems to me that's partly why kids have cleaved to digital media and social media, because that's the only public space they get away from us. And I think if we were to uh, free kids back into public space and get our anxieties out of their lives and our anxieties about other adults and our kids, I think maybe that would help to you know, create the more rounded lives that we've been talking about and uh, you know, allow them back into public space. It's, I guess I'm putting that up there for, is there any mileage in that idea? Thank you. Um, I'm a student at KCL down the road, and as I've grown up with the internet, I've noticed a real change in how I perceive of time. Uh, In the age of the internet, for example, not just apps like Snapchat or Instagram where you can set images to say five seconds, four seconds, or something that disappears overnight, and articles now having this little notation that this is a three-minute read or a five-minute read. Mm. So I parcel my time a lot more differently, but also some, the notion that anything on the Internet is now everlasting. So, for example, it has great um, possibilities for holding, say, public servants to account. Like, you can now really go back and see how they've evolved over a position, or you can pull something up and say, oh, that's contradictory. But on the other hand, if you mess up somehow and it's online, you can't really kick that for a while, or there's always the danger that it can come back. Like, I'm told quite often, be careful what you put online, because employers may find it, or you need to tweak your kind of privacy settings, or so on and so forth. So if you could just maybe comment on, say, time in the internet. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have time in a Thank digital you. space? I think we'll take another question from, uh, yeah, he had his hand up just behind my question is kind of linked to the previous one. Um, so I work in data analytics and uh, forecasting, and kind of take quite a lot of concentration to, to kind of do something useful and productive. 
and at the same time I'm always kind of aware that I'm supposed to be replying to emails instantly, staying on Slack and Microsoft Teams and like interacting with my team all the time. Um, do you think that the rise of social media and always being contactable will kind of have negative impacts on those kind of deep thought areas of the world, especially things like research and scientific breakthroughs? Okay, thank you. Right. Well, it's all about it's about like attention span as well, right? So I mean, I'm sitting here on my phone. My phone was buzzing. I thought I shut it off and it didn't. I'm like, who's you know? Stop. And, all, and my my brain went somewhere else. And I'm not a great thinker. I'm not a researcher. But I think what I see with younger people is their attention spans are so you know, the, the, the multiple screens. They're always doing eight things at once. Nowadays, you can't even get them to watch TV or go to the cinema without their phone sitting over here. And they're also, you know, so. It, you know, education and, and getting a, a degree, it's about longevity, right? It's about having an attention span. You spend time reading, you spend time learning. My worry is that the younger, this, these teenagers, my 13-year-old, 14-year-old, their attention span is so short. They all have ADD, basically. They're all over the place all the time. So, yeah, I do think it's going to interrupt um, research, scientific, because they don't, have, they don't have the skills to concentrate for long periods of time. On that, I think... I think the new like status symbol is to be slightly aloof. <laughs> I think like, I get emails sometimes out of offices from like big like CEO people who are like, "Hi, I check my emails for five minutes on a Monday morning, and then I don't <laughs> log back on until the following week. So if you need me, if it's urgent, te- you know all that stuff." And I'm like, "God, you really schedule your day with the email checking." So I, I kind of feel like being not always online and always kind of there is actually. Yeah, it's like the new cool to be slightly, oh, not going to reply, sorry. So I'm kind of seeing that in a work context. Um, but yeah, I still think we're all kind of addicted to communicating because it just feels nice to reply to someone. It's that rush, right? Yeah. yeah. Someone's wants me. Someone I don't have anything to say on the other question at the back. I think it's so interesting, but I feel like because I'm not a parent, I'm kind of like, can't, can't answer. <laughs> <laughs> but so, um, right, um, Thinking about, I would really agree. I try really hard to have the days of doing different things. Like, so I do email once every two weeks um, uh, because if I was just emailing everyone all the, the time, I wouldn't do anything other than then have another email back, and then you're just in a sort of. And so, it's like, um, and if I go back to. Um, when I started work in the 90s, I was a, a lexicographer working on the dictionary. And you would write a letter to somebody who would be the, the world expert in something. And uh, it would take two days to get there. They would spend a week and a half thinking about it. They would write back. It would be done. And And I think in terms of um, productivity we're throwing a lot of effort at becoming more productive but it's 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 almost not even like it's it's more that we're not prizing the depth of thought we're kind of prizing the volume um, over that and I, I think that point about the time is really interesting that you um, like time I haven't been online has a, like, 
a lot more depth and texture and a lot more things happen and I'm more alive. Um, and so I, I think you're probably right that we're kind of hurtling to a peak and then it's all going to sort of come back on itself. And, and, and to your last um, the point about kids, yeah, I, I totally agree um, that actually, like, one of the biggest challenges of parenting is giving the children space. Um, and that actually, um, if we were, like, if on the one hand, though, right, like, the, there's two sides of it. If I think about the slightly, like, the amazing range of experience my the son is able to have now, he lives in London, he's four, he um, expects, um, like, the, the episode of Oxenauts, he really likes to be on, like, again and again and again all the, the time. He doesn't expect it to be on on... on a Tuesday afternoon at half past three and have to wait a week. And, like, I genuinely don't know how that will change his brain. And potentially, we're raising a, a, a the generation of people who will think in a massively different, more expansive way. And possibly that's okay who knows it's uh, interesting I don't think I've ever been on a panel where something about ch- children are not watching TV anymore <laughs> it's true you know, even like planning you know growing up if you were going to meet someone somewhere you'd never phone and so you, you would say I will see you next Thursday Turn up. on this date at 7 o'clock I mean, it's, God I'm so dating myself and, and if someone gave a 20-minute grace period, you didn't meet someone in another country. I, if, you, if you were traveling as a student, you would literally say to someone, I, will, I we did this, I was a student here in London, and we went to meet a friend in Italy, backpacking. We'll meet you at the Duomo, I swear to God, on April 23rd at you know 4 o'clock in the afternoon, if you don't show up. So everything, we, I had always planned. Planned my money for where I was going, planned how I was going to get around. If I ask my daughter, my six-year-old now at seven o'clock, what are you doing? I don't know. That's because she's probably. Cast. I don't know. She's probably got like eight maybes yeah, on yeah, Facebook. But that's the thing. All these things are all the time, and there's no need to plan forward, to think ahead, yeah. to have patience, to you know, to wait for that show once mm. a week. That that's that taught me patience and anticipation. My kids go on Netflix and they binge watch. You know, House of Cards or Stranger Things. So I don't know whether it's better. Cause mm. I don't know. If, to figure out whether something is better or worse, I guess we have to look back. Yeah. And we, we're not in the position yet to look back. We're just in it. But the public space thing, it's an excellent point. It really is. It's actually one of the things that we've not... I've uh, been involved in uh, research working around uh, media and obesity and advertising and screen time and things like that. And one of the things that we've noticed most, or one of the things that surprised me in that work, was how it's almost been a kind of radical shift, for example, in bringing young people to school where 80% was brought to school, like walked to school or went, it's some kind of recycled, and it's now 80% gets brought to school in the car, partly for some concerns about safety and things like that. So 
that there is definitely something to that as well. And, and there is a really heavy surveillance culture that we mm-hmm. see that parents are monitoring. You know, a lot of parents give their kids mobile phones because they want to know yeah. where they are and what they're doing, right? And so that, I think, is a really good point. Um, also, I th- we, we've changed in terms of a knowledge society. It's different now. Right? <coughs> it, there's so much information that studying one thing is going to not be enough to be able to live in that world. And so we might see, be seeing a shift in that, in that we will have to know a little about a lot to be mm-hmm. able to, to kind of survive in this world or to know where to find it, right? So we need to be able to access all these things. And when it comes, we need to be able to dip in. So that's, I think, some of the stuff that I've seen in my work that is also for the world of work, but also for the work of studying in the terms that we're educating young people. is very different. I'm going to take... Um, Two more questions, because we don't have that much time anymore, and I want to get to the people who have had their hands up since the beginning, I think it was you and someone in the back, which I can't remember. Um, I'll, I'll ha- yeah, here in the white shirt, and I'll have um, here the, uh, with the black shirt here. If you can keep your hand up for just one second so they can see you. The second mic, yeah, right here. Okay, so just start asking your question. By the time the mic gets to her, then she can ask. My question is, uh, we've been talking about um, the digital presence from a very Western point of view, uh, where, like London, I grew up in North America, and so there is that our parents are as involved digitally as us as children are, or young adults are. But my question is, if you go into worlds where the digital presence of how, or how the digital world is used, there, there's a cultural difference mm-hmm. of the accessibility of what the children have and what the children are exposed to um, up till a good age of like almost 20, 25 or so, that there's a, there's a gap in uh, the way the digital world is accessible. And what would you, uh, how would you address parents in those, world, in those countries or in those places of how do you bridge that gap and how do you allow here education systems allow us to talk openly and have those dialogues about sexuality and all, all of those things how do you address this in societies where those topics are not only taboo in education systems but they're also taboo in public spheres um, hi, um, I'm a postgraduate from LSE sociology department uh, so I'm 23 now um, I, I, I guess my generation grew up as the social media dealer, so um, we had our social media peak when, I guess, during high school, and now as we're entering the workforce or academia, I actually see a soft retreat among my friends from the social media, like not like entirely off them, but kind of retreating from them. So I'm wondering can we actually expect this trend across generations or would that be quite different from for kids who literally don't know about the world that does not have social media? Okay. Thank you for those two questions. Final words and uh, reflections and answers to those. I'm hoping they get fed up. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, you know, I'm hoping my kids are going to get to a point where they just do not want to be accessed 24-7. And they're finding it, and they're just saying, you know what, enough. I need just to take a break from this. Um, so I'm hoping, again, they come to their own conclusions based on seeing what it's doing to them. Because my 13-year-old doesn't know what it's like to grow up 
without mm. um, the world as digital natives, as they call them. So I'm, I'm hoping that, you know, that from that perspective, that the, ki- the young people come to their own conclusions, like your friends and your peers, and do it on their own. The, the cultural issue is fascinating, because I, I, gosh, I don't even know where I would begin on that, whether how do you change a whole, you know, so many cultural perspectives on these issues? And, and I, I wish I was smart enough and knowledgeable enough to answer that question. Um, Have you got, uh, encountered any resistance here in the UK from some people who said, like, well, I'm not really sure that you should be talking about this to our... No, no, I mean, we work at all sorts of schools. We work faith-based schools, state comprehensives, eating. Um, we go to the gamut of every school. Um, the only school I had an interesting encounter, I, I do work in Bermuda, mm-hmm. and Bermuda's got the highest number of churches at, at, at any place in the world. Wow. I, mm-hmm. I did not know that. And it's very, very religious, very religious. And the only thing I ever had was a teacher recently, and I was there in January. He, a teacher walked out and complained that we should be speaking about abstinence and not promoting sex, which is ridiculous. But um, that was it. But all the thousands, hundreds of, hundreds of schools, thousands of kids... No, I, I think parents are like, you talk about it, you do it. I got tick. Someone's ticking a box that I don't want to tick. So I think most parents, culturally as well, from all are quite relieved that we take it on board, and that we kind of, or at least allow them to start the conversation. Yeah. On the trend of it, kind of maybe slightly becoming less, well, going to be less obsessed, maybe with like the candy and the sweet shop type willpower issue we have with phones I don't know about you but you know when you like read the entire internet before bed and you go to sleep (laughs) but it's I think for me and what I've kind of written about in the book is is that I know what it's like to not have a phone so therefore I don't get anxious when I've lost my phone for the day because I know what it was like so what I feel like and I'm not a parent so I'm like can't just don't have an opinion on parenting if you're not a parent but um, I feel like we need to make sure that they know what it's like to be without. Because actually, if I grew up holding a phone and didn't know what it was like to not have one, I would be anxious if I didn't have it anymore. Because that's what happens. You don't know, you don't know anything else. So um, I don't know what the answer is to that, but I do think that it's, it's, we're actually very lucky. Any generation that grew up not having one and then being introduced to it slowly is very lucky. I feel like we should hold on to that and try and teach people how to um, kind of be a bit more take it or leave it. Thank you, Rachel. Final, um, final words, yours. I would say that maybe your point about people having with jobs is a good one. Like that, actually, when you just have more the structure and more things to do, that maybe things change. And that's a sort of, I think that's a real unknown. Like you know, as a teenager, I would come home and call my friend and sat next. All day and speak to her for like two and a half hours um, <laughs> because I had the, the time to do that and I don't have um, mm. uh, that now and so things change so that's and and I I think your point was massively interesting because it was two completely different things. There's um, about giving people technology who have, who haven't had the technology and then there's about changing attitudes and I I think that. A thing that we've learned about giving people who haven't had technology technology that almost nobody is interested in having it for uh, um, its own sake 
you know if you give a person who likes to to cook an internet connection and then tell them about looking up recipes yeah or or a, per, a person who likes uh, the sport that they could look up a game that they were at 20 years ago you know that actually you're giving people context and a hook and that it might be asking a bit too much to give them a whole new tool to understand the, the world and then change them too I would say maybe so make it relevant and make sure that yeah. we can control it and have fun and avoid some of the other issues I would like to thank uh, the panellists a lot and I think as a 